Available at farmnewsnow.com or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Agriculture through a modern lens. This is the AgriPod with Alice McFarland. I'm off this week, but here's an episode from our archives to tide you over until I'm back. North America is a role model when it comes to reducing the environmental footprint of livestock production. Dr. Frank Midloner is a professor with the University of California, Davis. He told delegates at the recent Saskatchewan Swine Symposium the public needs to recognize the contributions of livestock agriculture to the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. He says the most pressing need is to get the countries that are not efficient in producing animal source food to change, and that objective can be met while at the same time minimizing the carbon footprint. Shelby Corey wears many hats. She is a wife and a mother, a rancher, a rural municipal councillor and a development officer with 4-H Saskatchewan. Life is hectic. Shelby is going to share how balancing the farm, kids, career and everything else can be overwhelming, but there is a way to find balance. She will share some of the things that she has learned to avoid burnout. After the break, Dr. Frank Midloner. Digging into the topics that matter to you. The AgriPod with Alice McFarland. Dr. Frank Mitloner is a professor and air quality extension specialist with the University of California, Davis. He spoke at a recent Saskatchewan Pork Industry Symposium and his talk centered on livestock's path to climate neutrality. Dr. Midloner, let's first of all talk about the true environmental impact of livestock production and how does it vary from species to species and region to region? The numbers that you oftentimes uh, hear cited are uh, international numbers uh, from the FAO, uh, and those numbers are around 14, so that's one for 14% of all climate impacts globally uh, stemming from livestock. Um, but that's a global average and uh, a number that does not apply to Saskatchewan or to Canada overall or to the United States or so, uh, where the impact of livestock are much smaller. In most developed countries, um, livestock emit approximately approximately 5% of the respective nation's uh, carbon footprint. So what are the key factors of livestock production that contribute to global warming? How significant is it? And how would the various livestock species compare? So, first of all, overall, if you look at all livestock species, um, the main contributors to greenhouse gases are ruminant species. So that's uh, cattle, goats, sheep, and so on. And uh, that's because they have a uh, four-stomach a system that lends itself to the production of methane. Methane is a potent greenhouse gas. Uh, that's the bad news. But the good news is that in contrast to other greenhouse gases, methane has a very short lifespan. So let's say CO2 carbon dioxide emitted from burning fossil fuels has a lifespan of a thousand years. So once that stuff is in the air, it stays there pretty much forever. And in contrast to that, methane has a lifespan of 10 years, and in general, it is emitted at the same rate that it's destroyed. And that means while methane is more potent than CO2, it thankfully doesn't last in the atmosphere for long. And so that makes it very important um, to, you know, that um, aspect of methane 
is extremely important to consider when discussing the footprint of livestock on climate. How have uh, livestock producers adapted to this move towards climate neutrality and how successful have those efforts been? So I would say that uh, this question requires a nuanced uh, discussion because there are some places that have done really well and others who have not really started yet. So um, the U.S. overall, I would say, is very efficient in livestock production, but um, that was not driven by reducing its carbon footprint or so, but it was largely driven by improving efficiencies. And here, uh, North America is really a role model for the rest of the world. We are, for example, here in the United States, I know you're in Canada, but here in the United States, we have uh, beef production uh, that feeds 18, that's one eight, 18 percent of the global beef demand with 8 percent of the global beef herd. So these efficiencies have a very far-reaching environmental impact, which is very positive. Dr. Frank Midloner is an air quality extension specialist based in California. Uh, what needs to happen to help other regions or other nations catch up in terms of the movement towards climate neutrality for livestock? So, first of all, the most pressing need that those countries and regions have in the world that are currently not efficient in producing animal source foods, um, the most pressing need they have or need they have is food security, having enough nutrient-dense food to feed their people. So that's the number one objective they have. Um, but that objective can be met while at the same time minimizing environmental footprints and that in that includes the carbon footprint. So by being more efficient in how we produce livestock, we also decrease the environmental footprint. For example, um, many people out in society don't really understand this link between efficiencies and emissions, but um, you sometimes have to use an analogy. For example, fuel efficiency of a car and emissions. They will understand that a car that they drive today is way more fuel efficient than the car their parents drove or their grandparents. And that means more fuel efficient cars mean that they also drive from A to B like their parents and grandparents' car did, but uh, they use a third or so of the gas to, to do it. And that means burning less gas means fewer emissions, and the same is true for livestock. Our pigs today are three times or more efficient than pigs were 40, 50 years ago. And that means with a given amount of input, you produce way more output. The same is true for cattle, the same is true for poultry. Uh, we have a remarkable story to tell, but it really is time to tell it. But is it even possible to reach climate neutrality and uh, what needs to happen to accomplish that? So what's really exciting about <clears throat> the discussion around greenhouse gases, and in particular methane, is that while methane is a potent greenhouse gas, it offers some unique opportunities. And that has everything to do with its nature of being a so-called short-lived climate pollutant. As I said, methane is not just produced, but also destroyed. Um, this destruction process is called oxidation. And if we manage 
to hold our livestock herd stable, meaning if we keep methane from livestock at stable rates, then we are not adding new additional methane to the atmosphere, meaning we are not adding new additional warming. If we, however, increase methane, that would be very negative because it's a potent greenhouse gas. But if we manage to decrease methane, and we have been doing that at a large uh, rate, if we manage to decrease methane from livestock, then we are actively pulling carbon out of the atmosphere, much like we would if we were to plant trees on a given amount of land, which sucks CO2 out of the atmosphere during photosynthesis. So reducing methane offers, uh, offers us a large opportunity for climate mitigation, and livestock can play a very important role in that. Just really quickly, in California, we have a new law that mandates a 40% reduction of methane to be achieved in 10 years from now. Our farmers thought they could never achieve that, but only a few years after the passing of that law, we are already at 25%. We have already received a 25% reduction of methane. And again, reducing methane means we are pulling carbon out of the atmosphere, which induces what's called negative warming, and negative warming is a fancy word for cooling. So livestock producers can reduce methane and counteract some of the warming that's associated with fossil fuel use, for example, from other sectors of society. So from what I've understood from your discussions is farming and forestry can offer some significant solutions to uh, climate issues. Forestry and agriculture are not just a source, but even more importantly, they are also a sink for greenhouse gases. Because both plants and soils can take on significant amount of carbon. If you look at your national greenhouse gas inventories or those here in the United States, you will find that, for example, the EPA in the United States um, says that agriculture and forestry emit 10.5% of all greenhouse gases in the United States. But they serve as a sink for 11.8% of greenhouse gases. Why the latter is never really discussed in the media is beyond me because farmers and foresters are our allies in the fight of climate change. Dr. Frank Midloner is a professor and air quality extension specialist with the University of California, Davis. After the break, busy rancher and mom Shelby Corey shares three things you need to know to avoid burnout. Digging into the topics that matter to you, the AgriPod with Alice McFarlane. We've all heard the expressions wearing many hats or too many irons in the fire. Whatever you call it, life can get pretty hectic. Shelby Corey knows all too well what it's like to be pulled in many different directions. Shelby, you shared your story with the Advancing Women in Agriculture Conference and uh, three things that you need to know to avoid burnout. So how do you do it? It must be overwhelming at times. And where do you go to center yourself? I come out here to the pasture and I take a deep breath. And I think, wow, how lucky am I? 
And how lucky are all of us here today to be part of such a diverse and amazing industry that no matter what background you come from or what skill set you bring to the table, I truly believe there is something for everybody in the agriculture industry. But as women, we typically take on more of the household duties, childcare, we take on the mental load of running a household, and it doesn't matter what industry you're in, and as far as society has come, women still do take on the majority of these roles. Add on top of that trying to build a career, and things can start to pile up and people can feel burnt out. But as I've built my career in the various roles and responsibilities that I have, I look back and think of three things that have helped me continue to push forward. So number one, if you can't tell, is passion. Know your passion. So ever since I was a little girl, I have been passionate about agriculture. And everything that I do today is connected in one way or another to agriculture. So I started my own beef business um, as a young mother sitting at home and I wanted to be able to connect with consumers um, and share the modern story of beef production. Um, and obviously working at 4-H is connected to agriculture and even my role in my municipal government is still connected to agriculture because I was elected for standing up for agricultural producers. Which will bring me to my next point of know your voice, which may seem a little off when you're thinking about how to avoid burnout and what does that have to do with it. But knowing your voice and knowing when to use your voice appropriately to have the most impact will help you to avoid burnout. So for example, you are not going to find me in the comments section of Facebook arguing with somebody, but instead I created my own online beef business so that I could connect with consumers and have an audience that actually wants to listen to what I have to say so that I can share the story of agriculture. So instead of wasting my voice and my time trying to argue with somebody who I'm not going to change their position, I instead find somebody who's willing to listen and a platform that's going to have the most impact. And that brings me back to my position on council. Um, I stood up at a public hearing and I presented appropriate facts in support of the beef industry um, and stood up against a detrimental policy. And next thing I knew, I was being asked by other community members if I would run for council. So another example of knowing your voice and using an appropriate platform to get your point across to the right people who are going to listen. Because, um, talking to the wrong people is going to get exhausting and we don't want to do that. We want to be able to talk to the right people on the right platform and knowing our voice to do that. So another part of knowing your voice is knowing when to use your voice and let people know that 
you need help or saying no. So when I started my role at 4-H, I had to speak up um, on my role as a municipal counselor and step down from some roles that weren't necessarily where I would excel. So I was on a couple of different committees that I had to step down from in order to take on my position at 4-H. So being able to use your voice to speak up when you maybe need to step down from some roles and speak up when you have the appropriate platform to do so. And both of these things are going to help you to avoid burnout and they've definitely helped me tremendously. You've talked about knowing what your passion is uh, about and knowing when to use your voice. What role does knowing your value play in helping to prevent burnout? It may also seem strange, but you need to use your voice to portray your value. So women in general do not tend to value themselves as highly as men. Um, which leads us to take on more and more responsibilities without necessarily being compensated appropriately. And we need to be able to speak up for that. As women, we bring a very valuable perspective to leadership positions. And I've been asked at um, multiple um, municipal conferences, how do we get more women involved? Because they want to hear a different perspective from women. And it's really important for us to know our voice and step up and to know our value and bring this value forward. So another example of knowing your value is when I started my beef business and knowing the exact value of my product and also taking into account my time and effort in marketing that product, which I don't think a lot of people take into account because I did get a lot of pushback, not from consumers, but from other producers who have been selling their beef for the same price per pound for the last 30 years and pushing back against me for marking my prices up to account for my time because I figured it out and if I sold it for the same price as them, I might as well sell that animal at market and I would get the same amount. So why would I waste my time? And I think it's really important for us to take our time into consideration and know our value so that we avoid burnout and we can take on opportunities that are going to be beneficial for us. And I'm not saying not to volunteer your time because that's important, but if we're considering a business opportunity or taking on um, a new career path, we need to know our value. We need to negotiate that because we do bring a very valuable perspective to the table, especially in leadership positions. And it only takes looking at the current pandemic and the countries that have navigated through the pandemic the best have all had women leaders. So I really encourage you to think about these things and think about stepping up into these leadership positions, but you also need to make sure that you're being compensated appropriately for your value. Shelby Corey is a wife, mother, rancher, RM counselor, and development officer with 4-H Saskatchewan.
It's time for the weekly agriculture news roundup for the week of November 30th, 2020. Statistics Canada released its 2020 production estimates based on farmer surveys conducted from the start of October to the middle of November. Cereal crop production was higher as wheat, barley and oats all recorded higher numbers this year. Total national wheat production rose 7.7% to 35.2 million tonnes. Higher yields and a larger harvested area accounted for the increase. Canadian barley production rose 3.4% to 10.7 million tonnes. Oat production rose 8.2% on a national basis to 4.6 million tonnes. Higher harvested area offset lower yields. Canadian canola production fell 4.5% this year to 18.7 million tonnes. The federal government presented a proposal to the provinces and territories on changes to agri-stability. Ottawa offered to make changes, but on the condition that the additional costs are shared on the usual 60-40 basis. Saskatchewan Agriculture Minister David Merritt said the offer also includes the traditional cost split of the additional cost between Ottawa and the provinces, but Saskatchewan, Alberta and Manitoba had been hoping that the feds would pick up a larger share. Ottawa is offering to increase the compensation rate under agri-stability from 70 to 80 percent and to remove the reference margin limit. The federal government committed to providing compensation for the supply-managed sector by March. Federal Agriculture Minister Marie-Claude Bebo said officials were putting together the last details before the second payment is made. Last year, the federal government offered the first installment of a $1.75 billion payout to dairy producers to cover market losses from negotiations of two trade deals last year. In making the announcement, Bebo echoed previous comments that the other supply-managed commodities and details would be announced before April 2021 for the poultry sector. Seeds Canada will lead the country's seed sector after a successful amalgamation vote. Four national seed organizations officially voted in favour of becoming one new entity. The Canadian Plant Technology Agency, the Commercial Seed Analysts Association of Canada, the Canadian Seed Institute and the Canadian Seed Trade Association will join forces on February 1st. The Canadian Seed Growers Association voted against amalgamation this past fall. Seeds Canada Board will include 15 directors drawn from the membership of national and provincial associations as well as seed growers. A Memorandum of Understanding was signed between ex-Steaminator Agricultural Products and Honeybee Manufacturing. The ex-Steaminator generates high-temperature steam for non-selective weed control. Representative Kevin Hirsch said there is a working prototype, but they need to design a cart to hold all the components and increase the boom size. He says if all goes well, that could happen in 2022. Fertilizer producer Nutrien launched a farm carbon program that it says will provide end-to-end support for improved environmental sustainability and boost profits for farmers. The company said it plans to use its role as the world's largest provider of crop inputs and services to help growers plan, plant and track practices to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, trap and store carbon and measure the resulting improvements. Nutrien said it will then help farmers make money from their environmental efforts by facilitating the purchase and sale of carbon credits. 
Nutrien is to pilot the new carbon program across North America next year and later take it to South America and Australia. While there was another COVID-19 testing option for travelers and businesses thanks to an agricultural company, the Saskatchewan Health Authority partnered with Quantum Genetics Canada to provide an independent testing service as an option for asymptomatic testing. SHA is estimating that this will add capacity of up to 350 tests daily by the end of December. Quantum provides livestock and crop DNA testing services. If you like what you've heard, you can rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. And make sure to subscribe to AgriPod with Alice McFarlane for more weekly episodes. The AgriPod is produced by Colby Heiss with host and CJVR Agriculture Director Alice McFarlane and is a division of the Jim Patterson Broadcast Group. Available wherever you find your favorite podcast and at farmnewsnow.com.